More than ever, we are in need to share the gospel. And Church at the Mill can't wait to do that with you in this podcast series, where we talk about who we are as a church and what we value. Join us for this spiritual and financial journey more than ever. Hey, Pastor. Hey, how are you? Doing great. Good. Thanks for having me today. Looking forward to it. We're going to talk about the vision of Church at the Mill. Mm -hmm. And our vision is to become a deeply faithful, remarkably healthy, highly impactful multi-site church. Mm -hmm. And this vision is carried out in a way that we gather, grow, give, and go together according to God's Word. So tell us today, what does it mean to be deeply faithful? Well, I appreciate you asking that. You know, I've often said, and I've continued to say in this series, that a lot of churches do a good job of writing their vision. Uh, but the difference between, I think, great churches um, and churches that have room to grow in that area is whether or not the membership understand the vision and apply it to their lives. And so when you talk about the word deeply faithful, I know as I was wordsmithing that, and I always say this to pastors, you know, our job is not to create the vision. We, we're all reading the same book. The New Testament clearly lays out the call of the call for the church from God. But often pastors take the vision from the New Testament, and while they don't have to create it, they contextualize it. They go, okay, how do I communicate this best to my people? And so the phrase deeply faithful really comes uh, from a place of recognizing that uh, our culture has become more and more secular. And, you know, there are some who wring their hands at that. They're concerned about that. But ultimately, as the condition of people becomes more and more spiritually dark, true churches shine the brightest. And to be deeply faithful means that their core convictions of who we are based on our belief and our theology that just don't move. And our scorecard then is not growth. Our scorecard is not what can be seen outwardly. The metric that matters most to us is if the Lord returns today, would he find us being faithful? I'm so thankful. He, he's not going to find us perfect. And um, the Word certainly doesn't call us to live in some sort of fantasy that we're going to achieve perfection. But I do know you can sense it when you walk into a church or walk into a fellowship and there's deep-seated faithfulness to God, who he is, what he's done, what he calls us to do. So, and there's a reason that that's the first phrase. You know, we that that phrase "deeply faithful" is the the diving board into being remarkably healthy. And then, when you're deeply faithful and remarkably healthy, then and only then, I think you have the potential to be highly impactful. And so, the deeply faithful not only matters in the uh, what what the words mean; they're pregnant with meaning, but also in the sequence of starting from a place of faithfulness, not from a place of we want to go gain ground, build buildings, draw crowds, and then work on being faithful. No, we want to be deeply faithful, and from that, we define who we are and what we do. Help our listeners understand the gospel truth that Church at the Mill believes by answering some of these questions. Okay. Where did everything come from? Well, you know, when you think about um, that question, 
Most people might think, well, that's, that's a little simplistic. Of course, you're a Christian, what you're going to say, but actually look at what the world is confused about now. So so we, we believe uh, the Bible is the source of truth, and the Bible clearly lays out that God is the creator of all things. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, he is the designer of all things. And when you create and design, you then get to determine purpose. So our view of creation really drives down deep into the individual Christian's experience. If we are, as the world would say, as the secular worldview, the, the, uh, the human rationalist worldview, the, the, the modern age worldview, if we are nothing more than a, a cataclysmic coincidence of the right uh, universal elements lining up and we're um, descended from life happening in just the right way all the way through Darwinistic evolution and we're highly evolved apes. If, if we truly are here by nothing more than a cosmic occurrence, then you really have no shot at finding purpose. And, and ultimately, that's what we find in, in human philosophies. By that. There, there's no shot. If we're highly evolved animals, uh, then, then basically we exist, we reproduce, and we die. And beyond that, Purpose is relative, and that's where you get, of course, moral relativism. And we see that today in the attack on, uh, even uh, in our own country, the the current debate about gender. You know, if God has not created us man and woman, male and female, and that in and of itself is up for definition, it leads to tremendous confusion. So everything was created and is created and sustained by God. And where did it go wrong? Well, Fortunately, the Bible's really clear about that as well. Uh, we were designed for perfect communion with God in relationship. And yet God in his infinite sovereignty allowed mankind a measure of free will. I don't think it's total, but a measure of free will. And Adam and Eve, uh, under the temptation of God's arch enemy, Satan, rebelled against God um, and uh, disobeyed the one command he gave them. And I think a lot of times uh, the emphasis for people on the outside looking in is like, you know, it's just one rule. But I think you forget of, of all the things he did give them. He gave them perfect unity and communion and a perfect place, and there was no sin. In fact, Adam and Eve were created to live forever. You and I are going to live forever. Uh, we're, gonna, we're not going to live forever in this world, and we're not going to live forever in these bodies. But we are immortal in that we live forever. Every human being that's ever existed is still alive today, not in the human form of their natural body, but their soul exists in heaven or hell. And so we know that the fall, uh, which is recorded, of course, in the beginning chapters of the Bible, allowed sin to enter creation, and it is very much like what cancer does to a body. It affects every cell it came across. And so we all, in Adam, because we are born of man and woman, we all are born in sin because of Adam and Eve's sin. And the Lord knew this was going to happen, and he created us anyway. That's what amazes me. If given the opportunity, I'd be glad to save my children's life. And I don't know of a a father or a mother like yourself who wouldn't gladly lay down my life to save my children's life. I wouldn't think twice about it. But if you give me the chance to save their life and my life, I'd pick that one. You know, I'd like to live. God knew that creating us would cost him the life of his son, and he created us anyway. This is why the truth about who we are as created image bearers of God and as people fallen and in need of redemption 
are the two pillars that lead to the beauty of the cross. The cross is an acknowledgement that that we we are utterly lost, that there is no hope. We are not, Church at the Mill is not interested in self-help or improving people's lives by their own sheer will. We, we want to make sure that we understand we are a people who are desperately lost and without any hope. And when the mercy of God appeared in Christ, he saved us, not of any works done of our own. That's what Paul says to Titus. But he saved us because of his great mercy. But also, the cross shows God's great value for the Imago Dei. He didn't die. I mean, I, I enjoy dogs and horses and, and, and you know, looking at... He didn't die for the animal world. He didn't die for the angelic world. He died for those he created in his image, which are human beings. And so, and so the cross really illustrates everything that is being made right from everything that was made wrong in the garden. Mm-hmm. So what happens when this is all over? So fortunately, Scripture's clear about that. So we actually, people say, you know, Jesus came. That's true, but we actually serve a twice-coming God. Um, you and I, we, we live in between the first and second coming of Christ. So, so for example, Abraham and Moses and Esther and Ruth and Jeremiah and Isaiah, they lived from creation to the first coming. So they knew the curse of creation, but they did not fully see the Messiah coming. They knew he was coming. In fact, there's so much Old Testament evidence where they were allowed through the Spirit to foretell and to prophesy that he's coming. But then you and I and people like Peter and James and Paul and, of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus, they were the first generation to live in a world where Christ did come. And, uh, of course, he lived around 33 years, and the last three years of his, of his life was his remarkable public ministry that impacted the world. If you think about it, he lived for three years, um, ne- never n- never held a political office, didn't have an army, never conquered any nation, and yet there's no doubt in mind, atheists would agree that there's no human being that has impacted history more than Jesus of Nazareth. And so for the Christian, we, we certainly believe he was a significant human being, but so much more than that, he came in the form of man, but he was God, God in the flesh. And so when he lived a perfect, sinless life, he was the only person qualified to do what Adam and Eve had originally been created to do, which is to live forever with God in perfect communion without the curse of sin. And yet the only person qualified to step into heaven on his own righteousness was the one that God poured out the wrath for the sins of the whole world on. He was the perfect sacrifice. And upon his resurrection... And this mighty, powerful, most important miracle of God overcoming death, hell, and the grave through raising Jesus from the dead, upon that resurrection, Jesus did not spend much more time on earth and was very clear. He said, okay, I've accomplished my work. The last thing he says on the cross is, it is finished. And so the payment for sin has been given once for all. And so the message of Christianity is not get right with God, go pay for your sin, clean your life up. The message of Christianity is not do, as many preachers have said. The message of Christianity is done. It's done. So it is the reception of that and the faith and the repentance from sin, believing that Christ will take our sins away. And so he says, I'm going back to the Father, and I'm going to return. But until I return, you are me to the world. You are the hands and feet of Christ. This is why I think sometimes people just assume and we don't explain it. This is why we are called in the Bible the body of Christ. 
Now, we're not the body in that we were not nailed to the cross, but we are the body in that if you're looking for Christ in the world, you're not going to find a carpenter in Nazareth. He's not around anymore. He's with the Lord. He is the Lord, and he's with God, but he lives in his people. So that's why we say things like when you serve a cup of cold water or you feed a meal, and Jesus says, when you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. And so we have this mission that we've been given. And the scripture teaches that every person's going to face their eternity in one of two ways. They're either going to die, you know, in this life, and that's how every Christian has stepped into the next world, through death, or they're going to be a part of the generation that's alive when he returns. Now, every preacher has said, I believe he's coming back soon. And the truth is, I always joke with my people, we are closer now than we've ever been to the second coming. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, But regardless of whether or not I see him return, or I die and go be with him, uh, when he does return, uh, he will not come as a, uh, a peasant's son to die and redeem the world. He came first in humility. Now he's going to come in victory, and he's going to defeat sin and evil and war and wickedness once and for all, and he'll consign all the unredeemed to hell, and all the redeemed will be welcomed into a new heaven and a new earth. And Of course, the study of that in Christianity is called eschatology, and it's simply the study of end times. It's mysterious to a lot of people because a lot of the language in the Bible around it is very metaphorical and symbolic and grand. But the good news is is that all the language in the Bible ultimately is given in this big, bold, robust way to say, the Lord wins. And if you know the Lord, there's no reason to fear. Which then brings us back to like more than ever and where we are now. If we really believe that, if we really believe that we're going to die and be with him forever or he's going to return and take us home, and, and there's nothing that anyone can do, including Satan or any demon of hell, to separate us from that love once we have it in Christ, why would we not want to do whatever he asks us to do? And, and, and think about what he's asked us to do. Share that same love with others. He's not asked us to fight wars. We don't have to kill in his name. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not terrorists. He's not asked us to right every political wrong. He's not asked me to chase down and bring justice in every situation. I should be an advocate for justice, but I can't right every wrong. He's not asked me to defeat every disease or, or, or illness. Or, he's asked me to make the world m- m- more knowledgeable of who he is and what he's done, to make him known. And, and I think his plan to do that, of course, is through the local church. Sure. So if someone listening today wants to further understand what we as a church body are faithfully giving our lives to, what other aspects of our theology are important for them to know or to understand? I, I think really it goes, it's not, I, I would say, I like, I like your word aspect, because it's, it's not like, okay, there's 10 great doctrines, but here's three more, that if you get these, then you'll get it all figured out. You know, unfortunately, in the in the South, and of course, we you know our church is in the upstate of South Carolina, primarily in, in Spartanburg County, but I've seen this all over North America. North America is now post-Christian. In fact, I just read a statistic. We're one of the only nations in the world, we may be the only nation that's losing ground as far as Christianity in relationship to population growth. But there's still a lot of uh, cultural aspects of Christianity that reverberate through who we are, you know, I mean, and so, and so, there's a lot of people that have heard of Jesus in our culture. There's a lot of people that have heard of the evangelical presentation of the gospel, which is to pray and ask Jesus into your heart. 
And I think that's a beautiful way of expressing. I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, trying to pound against the, the sinner's prayer. At, um, but unfortunately, what happens is, is that the gospel gets gutted. And so it's it's it it becomes a part of our culture. Did Jesus live? Yeah. Did he die? Yeah. My grandmother believed he rose again. Do you want to go to hell? No. Okay. Have you sinned? Sure. I got a lot of things wrong in my life. Okay. Well, if you'll just ask Jesus, then you'll be okay. And and we just don't find that in Scripture. Of course, we do not find a Jesus saying, "Come unto me, all ye who are perfect, or all ye who can figure out your own struggle." But what what we really find is that you you see in Scripture, you you basically switch masters. Before salvation, you're a slave to sin. You, you can do nothing but sin. You'll never have any victory over sin, and you'll die with the weight of your sin. And so when you stand before God, you'll stand in full guilt of your sin. But I love how the Apostle Paul talked about it, that he became a slave to Christ, that the chains of sin were broken, and the mercy and grace of God was so so uh, life-altering for him that he became joyful that he had a new master. And of course, that's what Lord means, master. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of the lordship of Christ in people's lives. Now, the good news about the lordship of Christ is that salvation is a one-time, a momentary, uh, sovereign act of God. But then the establishment of the gospel in your life is something that goes for the rest of your life. I mean, I was saved at eight years old. There's no doubt in my mind. But as a 45-year-old husband and father and pastor, there are certainly areas of my life where he has established his lordship to a greater degree now than ever before. Doesn't mean I've arrived, and there are certain areas where I struggle. And so I really hope that people who come in and around Church at the Mill, who are influenced by our content, who listen to the preaching, who join the church, I really hope that they say, you know, I understand the fullness of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Because we don't need Jesus plus anything. It, it, it's not. It's not as if we got a. Uh, you know. It's not as if we have something that other churches don't have, or that we want to somehow draw people to to some sort of a marketing gimmick or momentum or just great content. It, it's that we want to make much of the Savior, and and you can spend your whole life and and never exhaust how great He is, and then you just plug in the prepositional phrase, how great He is in your marriage how great he is in your life just as a mother, in my life as a father, how great he is in sharing my faith with a person who needs him, how great he is in helping me sort out the the the, the strongholds in my own heart. And so that, that to me is really what I want people to get from the depth of our theology. So coming back to that phrase, deeply faithful, mm -hmm. there are plenty of things in this world that we can be faithful to. Yeah. Why Jesus? Well, it's a great that's a great question. So, at, at the bedrock of Christianity, there's there, there is none like Him. There's none more yes. superior. There's none more beautiful. In, in other words, you know, the Bible talks about the mountains declare the glory of God, and so in, you know, you think about all the good things that make life worth living. You know, a beautiful rose in a meadow, the giggle of a child. Uh, the embrace of a husband or a wife at the altar as they kiss and exchange vows, uh, uh, the passion of, of of falling in love for the first time, the the joy of a delicious meal, the excitement of Christmas morning, the the victory over that which is evil. You could take everything that's good, every sunrise and every beautiful snow-capped mountain and every deep canyon with lush rivers. You could compress them all. And, and he still outshines them. He still mm -hmm. outweighs them. His glory is still greater. Mm 
Because all of those things that I've just referenced, he not only spoke into existence, he upholds and he, he came to redeem. And so the thing about following Jesus is that I've gotten to be around a lot of people who finished their race. They're dying, eat up with cancer, senior adults on their deathbed, terminally ill, young adults, whatever. And, and when you get to the end of that Christian's life and they will soon breathe their last, the one thing that, that, that they dwell upon most is the greatness of who Christ is. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't, I can't take any dream and any hope and any bank account and any experience of pleasure from this world into the next. But in him, I not only have the one who conquered the world, he's the one who will usher me into the next one. And so I think churches that make much of the greatness of Christ sustained over generations versus churches that make much of an individual experience or, you know, I I tell people openly, I, I cannot solve all your problems. And if you become a part of our church, you may even have more. If you join the mission of God, it's not going to be easy. But we can help you have a greater view of who Christ is. Yeah. In this conversation on being deeply faithful, I'm reminded of Ephesians 2, mm-hmm. 8 through 10. Mm-hmm. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Mm-hmm. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Mm. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Mm -hmm. So as we close today, will you share how the grace of God that Paul talks about here should inspire deep faithfulness and generosity in our lives as Christ followers? Yeah, I'll start with a rather uh, non-theological humanistic example. Humans study that which they love. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, you, 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 can, you can take a guy who has no interest in volleyball, and if he has a couple of girls who are taller than average and they fall in love with volleyball, he'll be screaming on the sidelines at the officials because he studied the rules, and he'll Google the right kind of ball to buy them to practice with, and he'll get them the best physical training, and he'll be hosting the travel team. And, and, and why, why? Because he loves his, his daughters, you know? Um, if you and your husband decide to take a special trip, part of the fun is getting on Airbnb or, or uh, Verbo and looking at all the cool places you could stay and, and, and the coffee shops you can visit and the hikes you can make. So what, whatever we esteem, we study. I mean, practically speaking, none of us enjoys fighting with our kids to get them up every morning for nine months in a row to get them to school. But the truth is we know that their ability to have some shot at gainful employment is directly related to a basic education of reading and writing, arithmetic, social studies, social sciences, uh, problem solving. And so societies that have advanced, advanced through knowledge. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, unfortunately, uh, there's so much emphasis placed on the relational aspect of following Jesus, the feeling. You know, I just want to feel the Lord that, that, that we forget that there's a direct correlation between feeling and knowledge. You know, when you when you fell in love with your, you know, your husband, whom I know, great guy, when you fell in love with him, you learned him. You learned what's his favorite food? What does he like to do? What are his idiosyncrasies? And you've, when you've been married as long as I have and you guys have, I mean, I know Laurel. I know her and I pay attention to things and I know her shoe size. When I see a sale, I, 
I know the things she enjoys. I know the food she likes. I know certain restaurants to never even suggest because I know she doesn't enjoy them, so I eat at them when, when I'm with my dude friends, you know? Why, why do I know her? I don't know your favorite restaurant. I don't, I don't know your shoe size, nor do I care. But why, why do I know her? Well, because I love her. I've studied her. I've, I've dwelt upon her. Well, you know, praying to receive Jesus and ask him into your heart and not going to heaven and not going to hell, I mean, if that's the gospel, if the gospel was just given um, a little bit of a, a nod to an ancient character um, who may or may not have future ramifications in your life, man, that's not a loving relationship with the Savior of the world. But when we love him, we want to grow deeper in our knowledge of him, and then it's cyclical. The more I love him, the more I want to know him, and the more I know him, oh, the more lovable he becomes. And the good news about him, unlike human subjects, you, you can't exhaust him. He's beautiful enough for an eight-year-old little girl to fall in love with, and he's deep enough for a 58-year-old New Testament scholar to continue to explore the greatness and the depth of who he is. And, you know, I could say that'd be a great commentary of Church at the Mill, uh, that when it's all said and done, because I think churches have shelf lives, that they, that they made much of Christ and drove the generation they were called to lead into a deeper, more abiding, more faithful commitment to Him. Thank you for sharing with us today about what it means to be deeply faithful. Yeah. Grateful for your insight on this, and it'll help us grow uh, together in this. It's been good. I've enjoyed it as well. <laughs>